I'm speaking with Monica Ng. Monica is a reporter for Axios Chicago with a specialty on food, health, and the environment. Monica came to Axios from WBEZ, where she was a reporter for eight years. Before that, she spent 25 years editing and reporting at the Chicago Tribune and Chicago Sun-Times. Monica has won multiple writing awards and been nominated for the James Beard Award five times. The daughter of Chinese and Puerto Rican parents, Monica is a fourth-generation Chicagoan whose children are fourth-generation Chicago public school graduates. So I want to start off by talking a little bit about your background. What part of Chicago did you grow up in? I grew up in North Park. People probably know that's north of Albany Park and south of Peterson Park, south of Hollywood Park, Peterson Park. Yeah, so around uh, Kimball and Bryn Mawr. I went to Peterson School, uh, all my brothers and sisters and I did, and I actually stayed in that neighborhood until I was in my early 40s. So it was a long time. And what was your experience of growing up there and living there as an adult like? Well, it was, it was a great place to grow up. As you probably know, that part of town was considered the outskirts of town at one time. It's why they put the tuberculosis sanitarium out there, the parental school for bad kids who we were always threatened, we will send you there if you don't behave. There was a home for unwed mothers out there around the turn of the century. And so it was seen, and, and it was very much farmland at one time. Uh, Pierre Peterson had his, his tree nurseries out there in Peterson Park. But I loved it. Once the Brown Line, once the Ravenswood Line, as it was called, came and stopped at Kimball, then a big Jewish community grew up around that Kimball L stop around Albany Park. And so that's what we would take. You know, we were like, at the end of the line, we would take Kimball bus down to the end of the line, and then we could have a link up to the city. And it was great. I loved going to Peterson. We used to always say at the time, oh, Peterson's the number one or number two CPS school in the nation. And then all my brothers and sisters and I went to Lane Tech. So we would take the Kimball bus to Addison. And Lane Tech was the number one high school at the time. And it was so funny because when I would read stories about, you know, Chicago public schools was at its worst in the mid and early 80s. And I'm like, oh, you mean when I went there, it's sort of like you never have that conception. All you think is, wow, what a great school system. I'm learning so much. So I have this completely maybe idealized view of my Chicago childhood, but I loved it. My neighborhood at that time was very Greek Jewish, Korean, very Swedish, but we also had South Asians. Uh, we were pretty much like the only Chinese kids there, certainly the Chinese, Puerto Rican, Peruvian kids. But I just loved how it was a, a microcosm of the city, not a lot of African-American. There was some busing, so we had some African-American students in grade school. But then Lane Tech, you know, you get exposed to a huge part of the city there. So I loved my childhood. I was a Chicago Park District kid, so I'd go to school. And at that time, you'd go to school in the morning, and then you'd walk home for lunch, you'd eat your lunch, you'd go back to school at one o'clock. After school, I'd go to the Chicago Park District, whether it was Eugene Field or River or Hollywood. I think those are the only parks that I did gymnastics for. And I did sports all year long. That was your babysitter after school. And I thought living in Chicago was great. I think I was oblivious because a lot of times you're like, you know, when you were growing up, there was so much crime. And you look at the statistics, you're like, holy cow, there was a lot of crime in the 70s and 80s. But when you're a kid, you just think that's the world. I would take the train home in high school at like three o'clock in the morning. I'd be waiting at the Belmont stop for my Ravenswood train to go back and never think twice about it but I was lucky. Did you ever think about leaving Chicago at any time? Never. I mean, 
I have left Chicago in that my junior year of college, I did that in England. So I went to U of I and then there was a great, you know, study abroad program. So junior year, I went to the University College London. Then right after I left U of I, after I finished, I moved to Nicaragua to do solidarity work. I built a childcare center there and then came back and married my college sweetheart. And he and I moved to Uzbekistan for a year and a half to do his field work. And then I came back, but I always wanted to come back to Chicago. So, yeah. Okay. So for like a big chunk of years, I was living out of the country, but I always came back and I was always happy to come back. And I never even thought of moving even to Evanston or Oak Park, which are technically kind of chicago <laughs> They still have the train. And what makes Chicago a great place to live for you? Well, whenever I leave town, you know, so my, so my ex is from New York. So we'd spend a couple of months a year while I was still a freelance writer when I was still in college in New York. And I like it, but I always wanted to come back to Chicago because it's so many things. It's, it's cosmopolitan. It's got great arts and culture, but it's also somewhat affordable. I mean, I won't say it's affordable for everyone for sure, but you're not like, you don't see the San Francisco or Boston or DC or New York style rents that you're like, how can anybody possibly live here? It always seemed to me manageable. And that could be because I'm a third generation Chicagoan or sorry, fourth generation Chicagoan because my great grandfather came here in 1911. And so of course I understand it. And I've been working in Chicago media since 1985. So of course I understand it. But to me, it's, it was like, it's got all these wonderful things, but it's also still livable. You can live here somewhat decently and get around. Obviously traffic can be terrible, but gosh, visiting friends in LA and saying, okay, we're going to meet you for dinner in two hours, five miles away. And we're going to hope we're going to get there on time. It's crazy. I'm like who would deal with this type of traffic? So anyway, for me, it has all the good things and it's still possible to live. And obviously lots of bad things, you know, the new crime statistics came out and they're higher than they have been in what, like 27 years. So I don't want to idealize it, but it's the ideal place for me. I think there's also that Midwestern friendliness too that makes Chicago a more approachable place than some other large cities. Yeah, I mean, at Curious City, we did a story about that. And I, I think I was one of the people pushing back. I'm like, it's such a freaking cliche. There are some really grumpy, mean people. Not everyone is nice in the Midwest. But yeah, maybe, I, I think maybe more so than necessarily in New York. But I do know some mean, not very friendly people in Chicago too. So what made you decide to pursue a career in journalism? Bottom line is, and I say this at all my journalism talks, my mom was dating Roger Ebert in the mid eighties. He said, Hey, does one of your kids need a job this summer? Because we need a new copy clerk at the Sun-Times. And I said, well, I'd just either be going to day camp or watching TV all summer. So I guess I'll try it. And I did and loved it from day one. And I remember one of my jobs was getting the afternoon papers, but I have to take this like rickety old cart down all these, not stairs, but through this back elevator, the freight elevator down to the roll room. And I'd get the stack of afternoon papers and I'd come up and I'd cut them with a scissor and break open this bundle. And I'd be able to tell you what was going on in the world. I remember one day I cut open the, the afternoon papers and it says, Madonna marries Sean Penn. I'm like, we're the only ones who know this right now. And I thought I never want to be anywhere else but a newsroom. And so in summer of 1985, I decided that's what I want to do with my life. What has it been like to transition from working in the newspaper world to then working in radio and now working in digital media? It was weird. I mean, I was always a big fan of WBEZ, but I started radio maybe 20 years after journalism. Jeepers, I'm trying to think. 
more than 20 years into my journalism career. And so in print, you're always thinking about images and spelling and direct quotes and really being super clear with your words and thorough. But in radio, you have to think about emotions and sounds. And I did a story about the high death rate among African-American women from breast cancer and how we really needed to improve the statistics. And my editor sent, she said, well, where's the sound of the mammogram? Like I never needed to like record a sound of a mammogram machine when I was in print, she said, okay, go back to rush and get it. But I did go. And my daughter was like, can't you just take a sound of an air conditioner? I'm like, no, you can't do that. But these are things you, you don't think of when you're doing radio. You have to think about the emotion in the tape. You don't care about emotion necessarily in your quotes and print because sometimes they can just email them to you. So you don't have to like I don't want to say hope that the person sounds hysterical, but if the person sounds hysterical, it makes great tape and it conveys so much without having to say it on the radio. What is it like covering your hometown as a journalist? Is that a special thing for you? It has its pros and cons. So when I was doing Curious City, I would look at a question and be like, okay, I know exactly which experts to talk to here. And I know the history of this area. So I can sort of already bring in that knowledge. But when you go to the city's largest high school, largest university, and work at all of the city's biggest news outlets, you make friends and enemies. So there are certain media relations people in the city and state and county who hate me, and they often get shuffled around. So it's like, oh, yeah, okay, that person's at CPS now. I used to deal with them at the Department of Aviation. Oh, that person's at the Department of Health now. I used to fight with them when they were at the Water Department. Or I remember there was uh, someone at Park District who was the media relations person there. And I actually went to high school with her and we were clashing a lot. I was doing stories about how there was lead in the water in the Park District fountains. And then I actually ran into her on the dance floor of our 30th high school reunion. And she says to me, you're looking for something that you're not going to find. And I said, I'm just foying information about lead in the water. And that turned into a, a bit of a fight on the dance floor. So having too much of a history with people in town can have its pros and cons. I imagine though, it's giving you a lot of insights into the city that you probably wouldn't otherwise have. That's true. I like to believe that it's more of a plus. Whenever there has been an opportunity when people have said, hey, why don't you come and work for us in DC or in New York or LA? I think about it. And especially when my kids were younger, I'm like, I cannot leave. You know, my kids have to come with me. I think about it, but then I think, gosh, I got to get to know like the whole new landscape. And that's daunting because just trying to figure out who the quote unquote good guys and bad guys are, who the front groups are, and who's going to try to trick you into thinking that their narrative is the right one is half the battle. I remember when I first, when I was doing news reporting at the Sun-Times as a college student one summer, they said, okay, Monica, on the general news desk, I'd come in, I'd get my assignment. And I'm like, okay, the CT, we used to call it, the red line was the Howard, Howard 95th line has stopped. What happened? You know, call the CT and find out what happened. And they gave me a load of baloney about how it was just some, someone dropped a tool on the thing. And it was actually much more serious than that. It was much more dangerous. And the transportation reporter, like, as you were word up my story, he said, you know, they just fed you a whole bunch of baloney. And I said, well, how was I supposed to know that? And they said, well, it's years of reporting to figure out who can you can trust and who you can't. And I thought, I'm never going to figure this out. But I guess I kind of feel like I sort of have. I mean, there are times when you can just smell that uh, officials are trying to give you really a kind of a false narrative or a skewed narrative. But as a young reporter, it's harder to figure that out. 
I've noticed that one of the themes in your reporting seems to be food and restaurants. And I'm curious, how does your interest in food or how did that develop? That's a good question. When I first started at the Sun-Times, I was, uh, you know, I, I did, they asked me to do teen stories. So I wrote about teen dance bars like Medusa's and then teen fashion. And then one day, my friend Ernie Tucker, who was doing something called the Lunch Chuck Wagon at the Sun-Times, he took vacation. They said, Monica, can you write his column for this week? But it was just like a lot of press releases about food. And I said, sure. And I really enjoyed it. And then I would start to do restaurant reviews and try to choose places and things that nobody else was covering. I remember when there was something called a Chicago Sizzle or the Sun-Times Summer Sizzle. They wanted to put out a summer section. They said, Monica, think up wacky stories. I was still in college at the time. And the wackier, the better. And if it's a strange story, make it stranger. Just keep pushing until we tell you that's too weird. We won't put it in the Sun-Times. And so I said, okay, I'm going to do a falafel walk of Albany Park. And I'm going to rate it um, one to five chickpeas. And they're like, okay, go for it. And I said, I'm going to try to crack an egg. It was a really hot summer on every surface I can possibly find all over the city to see where it will cook. So I went to a junkyard in CTA. Anyway, but I realized I really liked writing about food. And then if I wrote about like really sort of hole in the wall places, I wouldn't get other people in the newsroom mad at me saying, oh, she's trying to steal my fire. So when I went to the Tribune, I remember Bill Rice, who was a Tribune reporter, he's like, oh, we think that the places you go are so exotic and strange. And we love that you go to those. I was like, okay, the Tribune was a largely older suburban-y white readership. They thought this was sort of exotic. So it's always been for me a way to explore my city and present it to people in appetizing ways, so to speak. I feel too like it's a great way to really get a sense of the different cultures too that are in Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I always say that if you don't have the money to go to South Asia or China or Korea or Poland, you can find a way to sort of take a cultural tour in Chicago without leaving the Chicago area. It's terrific. So how is your transition to Axios right now? Right. Well, when I was at the Tribune, I was a watchdog investigative reporter in my last years there. And you'd spend weeks, months on stories and then write this multi-thousand word piece. I also wrote for the Tribune magazine. And so when I went to radio, I had 45 seconds to tell a story. So if a new report came out from the inspector general, I would you know, sometimes write a 5,000 word piece on it. And here I had 45 seconds to encapsulate. I thought there's no way, you can't do it. Impossible. You cannot say this in 45 seconds, but I learned. So that made the transition to Axios a little easier where no story is more than like 350 words and that's tops, most are 200. So I think I just had to make peace with it. I had to say, I'm going to say one thing here. I'm going to make one point and I'm going to do it with a lot of bullets and what do we call axioms and say why it matters. And it, it's, it takes a lot of pressure off to have this vast wide ranging story that covers everything. You can say one thing. And if you find like one great data point, you've got a story. If you've got one picture, sometimes you've got a story. And so I really, it's, you know, it's been two months and I'm still trying to wrap my head around what that means and how to, how to do an interview that really is at all satisfying, but I like it a lot. And I wonder if a younger reporter would not want to, or feel satisfied doing this kind of journalism. Because for me, I've done the 10,000 word stories great. And I can still do them. I'm, I'm going to do a piece for Chicago Magazine in the spring. And I did a piece for the Washington Post a couple months ago, longer profiles. And so I can still scratch that itch. But 
from day to day, I like being able to just jump around and say, here are five sort of interesting things about Chicago that I want to tell you today that I found out. And then tomorrow I got to find five more with Justin Kaufman. So I don't have to do five on my own. And I feel too like that really fits how people consume news now where they're really looking for those quick hits. Yeah. I mean, it's so funny because this like super brainy professor wrote to me and I've known him for a while. And he said, I just love how quick and to the point and short your stories are. And my friend, Linda, you actually said the same thing. She said, your stories, your, your whole thing is never more than two minutes. I don't know whether to be insulted. Like I don't have to spend more than three minutes with you every day, Monica, or just say, you know what, this is the way of the world. Even academics who are usually like long drawn out stuff, they like this short stuff. I mean, it respects people's time. And that's what I always like. That it's not all as what I'm doing right now, filling up the room with words that don't mean anything. Every word has to mean something. In closing, I'm curious to know how the experience of living through the pandemic in Chicago has changed your perception of the city. Well, I went from everyday commuting and seeing the city that way, riding my bike or taking the train or in the worst years driving and sitting on the Kennedy to being in this room, staying in this house for the last almost two years. So like 19 months, some days I never even get outside. And that I think is a problem. So I try to make myself before the sun goes down, go walk the dog. And especially with Axios, we wanted to be like, okay, let's get out. Let's say we're going to find five neighborhoods today. This will be a day we don't write newsletters. But I, I think it's, it's cut me off from the city, from you know just being there and driving through areas and saying, okay, well that opened and that closed. And I want to get back to that now that I've gotten a better handle on how to write a newsletter every day. But it's, it's weird. Like a lot of people, I'm now my world is my home and setting up computers and monitors and multiple uh, keyboards and things is what I do. And I sometimes never leave the house. <laughs> it's made me realize too, how many things there were in my own neighborhood that I didn't know about because of the fact that I had overlooked them in the past. Right. Like the local grocery store that you can just run out to and get some broccoli is gold now. Place on the corner. We go there all the time. <laughs> well, thank you for taking time out to talk today. I really enjoyed talking with you. Same here. And I love looking at your photos online too. Thank you. It's been fun to do that during the pandemic.